What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Human Humanities United Martial Arts Network. I'm Shane, joined again, of course, Marcus Koval. What's going on, Marcus? How you doing today? Good, mate. How are you? Can you can you introduce our guest for us today? I will, just because someone very special to me has been in my life for a long time, and uh, I count it back. I think Mitch Tavera is going to be. I'm going to introduce him in a second. He's been in my corner for at least ten or eleven fights, both boxing and MMA. Um, but he's a former chief of police of El Segundo uh, here in California, former SWAT team leader, Black Kramaga, black belt, boxer, mixed martial artist, uh, force uh, training uh, instructor for law enforcement, and an uh, all-around great guy. How are you, Mitch? I'm well. Thank you for having me today. How are you uh, to be on your show? And let me just say that um, I always thought Marcus was, uh, should have been a world champion in boxing, and unfortunately, during that time period, I was um, um, working you know, quite often with the police, and I couldn't make it to some of his events. Um, I wish I'd have him now because I think he would be a world champion. That's how talented Marcus is. And unfortunately, he was probably a better golfer than he was a mixed martial artist. And he could have been hitting for the PGA Tour. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it would have made me more money, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and your nose would look a little bit sharper, too. <laughs> So um, one of the topics, one of the reasons I think now is a really good time. It's always good to have you on because you have so many stories. You work with so many people, including uh, John the Bull Marsh from Pride UFC um, and, and, and many other guys. But one of the topics I think is really, really good to cover right now is the use of force by police officers, because it's something that's being very discussed right now uh, all around the country. And some are saying abolish the police or defund the police and, um, we had Henry Grace on not long ago talking about it and how important education for police officers is and who better to, who knows more about it than a force training officer. So uh, I, I wanted to, to take you to have your take on, on, on the use of force by police officers in, in today's society. Well, thank you, Marcus. And it, and it is a very important topic. And let me just start off by saying that police officers uh, in California uh, throughout the United States but especially in California, we're actually de deemed to be by penal code, our California penal code, to be peace officers. So we're there to keep the peace and understand that's primarily what we want to do when we go on to a call. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of how minimal force is used in context uh, with the number of contacts uh, in, the, in California. And I'll, I'll use the United States as an example, but we we'll use LAPD because they are the biggest department in California. Uh, that's, we call them Big Blue. They set, uh, they set marks on a lot of areas. Uh, where we're at, the South Bay Hawthorne, uh, very high level of training in those departments. But we'll use LAPD, and I'll give you an example. In 2019, they had 1,692,000 plus contacts. That's contacts with civilians uh, between law enforcement officers and um, their citizens. Now, th those aren't all arrests. That's just context. Out of that, there were 2,300, over 2,300 use of forces. Uh, that means measurable use of force. That can range anywhere from, a, uh, uh, from basically an arm lock um, to, a, uh, to a shooting. That accounts for 0.14%. So think about that. Not one, not point, not 1.4%. 0.14% use of force was used in context. Out of that, um, I'm using LAPs again because that's the, the, they're, they're the biggest department around for us. Out of that, um, in 2019, they had 115 officer-involved shootings. 
In 2019, they had 26. See the reduction you're, I'm, I'm showing you here. When you look at the 26 shootings, that means, Oscar Bell shootings, that accounted for 0.001% of all contacts with the uh, civilian population. So I say to you, force, measurable force is used very rarely. Uh, Osterbach shootings are even more rare, but because of the great responsibility that officers are given, and use of force is a great responsibility, remember we're really the only public um, agency that can use deadly force without uh, court uh, approval. In other words, we have the ability to take somebody's life in the course and scope of our job if in, if in fact we believe it is objectively reasonable to defend the life of ourselves, a fellow officer, a citizen, um, in, in that regard, we can use deadly force without prior approval. So we're given this great responsibility. So obviously, it's something we want to see is, is, is very seldom used. And even force very seldom used. Um, most of the time, you'll see that officers get uh, people into custody. Um, they're able to do their job by using their wits, by using what they call um, verbal judo. It used to be in the 80s and 90s. Now it's called uh, tactical communication. But getting people into custody without having to use force. That's the, that's one of the main goals. If you're going to arrest somebody, if force is going to be used, you try to use your verbal skills prior to using any physical skills. If that doesn't work, then we have to go to our physical skills. So in the context of, of, of force, police officers use force very seldom. Um, and when it is used, it's scrutinized and it should be scrutinized, but people, the exterior of our, uh, uh, and remember, and it, it can be very, when you, when you are, when you have a family member that is a um, that was in a and just believe me when I say this, when you have a family member that has had a serious force incident with law enforcement, like a shooting, um, they're they're your family member. Law enforcement understands that. I mean, it's it's an emotional response. But saying that to everybody that hey, give a law enforcement credit for the work that they're doing to reduce uh, deadly force encounters and to reduce. Uh, the times force is used to take them into custody. And I think it's important that people realize that every day they're working towards that. And when you talked earlier about training and Henry Gracie, was it Henry Gracie? Am I correct? Said that? Yes. Okay. Yep. That Gracie, but force instructors, they would definitely like to have more opportunity to train their officers to be better in uh, encountering people, not just, not just hands-on, but also verbal. Uh, the skills to talk to people, the skills to have tools on scene. You know, for instance, today in dealing with mentally, um, uh, it's, I'm, I'm putting mentally challenged, but understand that means people that are in mania, they're having a, a psychotic episode of some time, whether it's through drugs or mental. Many times those officers are on scene with mental health professionals trying to uh, remedy that situation in a, in a positive non-force uh, format Sometimes it doesn't work, but you'll see that law enforcement, because we are responsible for the public, has been tasked with reducing force context, um, and they're doing so, but people should understand that, uh, give us credit for what, or give law enforcement credit for their continued ability to try to reduce those numbers of force contacts. That was a very, uh, very, very good answer on a lot of topics, the statistics that I had no idea existed. Uh, uh, as far as when you say uh, officer-involved shootings, is that when the officer is being shot or the officer is involved shooting shooting back? Or an officer-involved shooting, where the officer discharges far at a suspect and hits that, and hits that suspect. That's right. where we're going. And so, you said 26? 26. 
20, only uh, 26 this, uh, in 2019. I think there was 26. Oh, wow. Wow. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's gone. Wait, and you'll see that nationally. You see this trend. And in Southern California, um, in California, we have a, and, and most states have this, we have a, um, a, a California state government agency called POST. California Peace Officer Standards and Trainings. And they set standards for how our officers are trained from everything from domestic violence to first aid um, to you know, a multitude of things. Because a police officer, when they go out into the, uh, into the world, when they go out to do their job, you never know what's gonna happen. It could be that you're helping um, an elderly person, to be honest with you, you could be helping them uh, bring groceries into their house. It could be that time you have ability to do it or it could be that you're involved in a um, active robbery with an armed suspect and he's shooting at you and you have to defend yourself and, and, and defend your others. So you never know what's going to happen. So post has a huge mandate on training for, again, as I said, domestic violence, mental, um, um, uh, you, you have uh, first aid, you have uh, health and, and privacy issues. I can go on and on, but all the things you can imagine that a police officer does during the day, they have training in. Those are your mandates. Out of that time, they have to go to work. You don't only have so much time, they have to work on a shift. You know, we're not there 24-7. Thank God they get to go home and have a regular life. So during that time period, now comes in the use of force training. And force training involves the use of firearms, but also other types of instruments. And I'm saying instruments and, and tools as opposed to weapons because I think that's how you have to use them. Whether it's um, beanbag shotgun rounds for um, uh, taking on a subject that doesn't present a deadly threat at that time, or they may, but you want to try to use another method to take them into custody without killing them, uh, down to the use of a police baton, to the use of, of ole and resin capsicum spray, OC spray, hands-on training, uh, verbal skills, all those things on force fall into that category. And so you have a, a smaller amount of time to actually train in force. Remember, force is used very seldom, but force is probably the most litigated issue for law enforcement. So it's the most probably uncommon area we do, but the most common area to be litigated. And so it's extremely important for something that happens very seldom. It's extremely important that we're competent in it. And to say that all law enforcement officers are um, as the host of Shane, is it Shane's first name? I'm sorry. I, I, uh, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, Shane. Shane and Marcus, both of you are very competent in how to handle yourselves. Most officers aren't that competent. Uh, understand that they don't have the opportunity to train as much as you. The ones that do, that go on their own, I believe uh, that's, uh, that's, that's commendable. But most officers don't. And you guys both know uh, that confrontations and fights don't go as they go in the movies. Um, uh, it's messy. Um, you know, I've heard the analogy, it's like making sausage. You don't want to see, you just want to see the end product. Well, I'm telling you, force issues don't resolve themselves when actual force is being used. It's not the, um, it's not going to look like a movie studio um, cop uh, show. It's going to be messy at times. It's going to be, uh, violent at times, and you're going to see things go, why the guy do that? Well, um, one is, it could be that the person that you're dealing with is stronger than you, you know, is bigger than you, uh, has more to gain by getting away than you, has more talent than you. So those are all things that are factored in. So our force training is while we, we want to do as much as we possibly can, um, 
there are only so many hours in the day that we can do that. And uh, do I believe we should do more? Yes, I do believe we should do more. But I'm trying to, uh, I'm tr as a chief and as a manager at times, you're also trying to manage how much time does that officer get to work in the field? Because he can't train 24-7 and be in the field 24-7. There has to be a mix on that. And that's what uh, police departments do a very good job of. They have training programs to do that, training plans to come up with that. So that's what they do on a regular basis. So yes, I was just going to say, so just to echo that, so you're saying, look, these, these statistics, these percentages are much lower than, than I realized, than what most people realize. And like you said, we'd like to see those numbers lower. The, the police officers would like to see that lower. Civilians would like to see that number lower. And like you said, more training would be good. But how, how would you be able to do that? Would it just be a longer course that a, that a police officer has to train before they're actually active duty and out, out patrolling? Or is it more often that they should be doing training? Great, so great more, question. More police? That, that's a great question. And let me just start off by saying, uh, both of you have been involved in combat sports, yes? Yep. And both of you have seen talented people lose to people who are physically fit, better. In other words, I go in, I got two weeks of training, but I'm far more talented than you, Shane. But you take me through the first two minutes, you gas me, and then you, then you win the confrontation, right? Mm -hmm. So number one, I think officers have to be physically fit. There has to be a standard for that. But there are several reasons why there's not a state standard. I mean, and it has to go down to, again, um, um, hours, injuries, workman's comp, union issues that would come up with that, paying the officers to stay in shape. But I believe officers should have a level of fitness to do their job. It's just a personal belief. Um, I wish there was a state standard. Uh, and that standard would have to be based upon what our job is. Now, what do we have to do? Well, we have to run at times. We have to jump fences at times. We have to drag people at times. We have to handcuff people at times. So it has to be a test that would be comprehensive to do the job that we do. Does that make sense? That's right. Yeah. You know what? And so saying that, um, to me, there are officers who go out of the way to train on their own. They stay in shape and they go to, uh, I'll, I'll say dojos as a, as, a, as a generic term, but they go to dojos, uh, to training studios to be better um, in the ability to handle themselves in a conference. And I will say this, uh, this is a, as an observation. Peace officers or people in general who are confident themselves, uh, you can tell right away, they project an era of confidence, not cockiness, but confidence. They have less confrontations. And when something happens, they handle it quicker than someone who doesn't have that same ability. Yeah. So I think it's important to take a look at that. Can we devise a training program that gives our officers better and more training, relevant training to what they're doing. I think the answer is we can always do better. And we have to sit down and work with the, um, you have to work with your individual departments to see what we can do. So when we do have an issue that comes up, that it may in the end end up the same exact way as something else you've seen bad, uh, ends up with a homicide of the subject. But at least our officers were trained in the best way possible to handle that. Um, and that they tried a number of options and it just didn't work because sometimes things just don't work. That's another thing too is, and you know this, it is hard to deal with somebody who doesn't want, when you try to put my arm behind my back and I tell you, I'm not gonna let you do it. You know how hard that is. Even in your train to put it behind your back, especially if the person has knowledge and is physical, it's nearly impossible until you do certain things to me. So saying all of that, 
I would love to see more training, more hands-on training and relevant training to what the job is. And we have to find a way to get our officers that type of training so they can go out and do their job, protect the community, protect themselves, protect the department. Um, and, you know, one thing about when you see excessive force, and again, we'll, we'll talk about objective regional force, the standard police officers use. That's the state standard. It's really the national standard, objective regional force. What a reasonable officer what a reasonable officer would do in that situation. That's really what it comes down to based upon the totality of the circumstances. So uh, that's our state. I'll get back to that. So we're, we're talking about our police officers. We have to have training programs that focus on what they do and what they do is they handcuff people. They take people who are angry and they control people. They talk to people. Um, they try to get that person uh, to comply with their orders without using force. They sometimes have to use deadly force. So our training programs are very well-rounded. Um, we can do better, but very well-rounded. And we have to focus on those things that are going to protect our community and our officers. When we have excessive force, I, let me get back to this. I was, I was thinking about this, is you can see what it does to the community. It ruins their ability to trust the department, doesn't it? And it causes massive protest. I mean, I would never have thought that an incident in Minnesota would cause riots in Los Angeles like it did. I would never have thought that. I would have thought it maybe in Minnesota, but obviously you see people um, uh, were so upset by it, um, what happened here in California, and it had nothing to do with Minnesota, nothing at all. Our officers would not do that. They would not sit on someone's neck for eight and a half minutes. They would not. I'm, I'm very positive that in Southern California, especially in the South, that would not happen. So um, what we do as law enforcement officers, is nationwide now, we're under the microscope. Again, it should be, the fact is force is a, um, um, an extremely, how would I say, um, important part of our job and people expect us to use objective reasonable force. So therefore, and all that saying to you is, our training programs have to be um, contingent on teaching our officers how to do their job. And I do believe, physical, yes, physical fitness needs to be a part of that and then, We'll have to find a way, and I think officers should on their own also uh, go to various dojos to train in unarmed combat. So you, 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 you said something as far as physical standards. Is there currently zero physical standards for police officers? Well, when you, when you come onto a department, you have to pass post standards. Uh, there is a physical standard. But, and again, I'm not aware, I, I did my research on this from a master's program at one time. There are some departments that had physical standards and they tied them to the department. Many of those departments, there are some that still have them, but for the majority, I'm gonna say vast majority, there is no annual standard, Marcus, that you and I, now there is a physical, you have to pass your department physical either every or every other year. That's different than having a fitness test. I wanna make a distinction. You may pass your standard on your, on your physical that says, hey, your cholesterol is good, your heart's within its range, um, you know, X, Y, and Z. But that doesn't mean you can go out and pass a fitness course that is relevant to the job that you do, gotcha. if that makes sense to you. Yeah. And, right. and then so, I, I remember being down in Brownsville in Texas. I was there with the celebrity and we had 24-hour police protection while we were down there. And uh, we me and this person were training and the officers were watching while we were training. And uh, the chief actually said, 
I can't wait until we get training like this. I said, what do you mean? You guys don't train? And said, no, we have zero training. And, 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 and as in as zero, no training whatsoever when it came to force. And this is, and I don't want to call out Brownsville Police Department, but that zero training. So we're talking about Los Angeles, New York, some of the biggest cities and states where, where the officers, I believe, are some of the best trained officers. And then we've got the rest of the country. You talked about a state um, level of training. Is, is there anything on the national level or is it all independent? No, it's, it's independent really on the region that you're in. Uh, it depends on your department. And uh, when you look at it, uh, you know, the South Bay, and we'll use them because that's where I, I've come from. And uh, being in LA County, you see some very well-trained officers, you do. And that training is very important. And again, I can't, uh, there's a lot of different areas we train in. The state standard, national standard, there is none. And that's what people talk about. You know, I'll give you an example, for instance. Right now, because, and I'm going to say, I'm not going to say hysteria, it's not the right word. But because of what's happened nationwide, especially Minnesota, they have taken away the carotid restraint um, uh, from police officers. They put it in deadly force. Uh, the, only, I, the only study that I know of scientifically on the carotid is in 2007 from Christina Hall, a doctor out of Canada. They did, and they found that the proper application of the LVNR the lateral vascular neck restraint, which is a carotid, when applied by people that know how to apply it, is no, no, I would say, there is no inherent danger to it, all right? Now, there is inherent danger if you misapply it. You know this, if you choke, we know the difference between a carotid and a choke, yes? A choke, we break the trach. A carotid, we're restricting the carotid arteries. We've taken that tool away because of what happened. So you've taken a tool away recently that I would ask either one of you that if I did a grappling match with you and I said, you guys can't use any type of carotid against me, but I get to, I'm the suspect. I would like you to tell me if you think you'd be at a disadvantage. Yeah, of course. Okay. Of course you would, right? Because we know that that hole properly applied is safe. We know that it renders someone, like I'd rather have a carotid put on me than you get me in an arm bar and break my arm or a yeah. heel hook and pop my knee. Um, and that's, that's just the way it is. I, I've said this before to people. I would rather have my sons, if they did something wrong and an officer had to use force against them because they did something wrong and they were fighting, put a carotid on them and render them unconscious and then take them safely into custody, then take their baton out or, or you know, use their dog or a taser on them because the lasting effects are much, are much less. Now, does that mean I think there's no risk to it? No, I think there are certain people that are higher risk pregnant women, elderly women, uh, elderly people, excuse me. I believe they say uh, people of um, um, Down syndrome people, possibly. I think if you go through, there are certain people that have higher risk, hyper, if you know it. But saying that, I think all of us know as martial artists that karate is really safe and effective at controlling someone who doesn't want to be controlled. Now they've taken that and put it in deadly force, so it's not. So I think what you've done is you put people at risk at times for greater damage to them because the officers lost this tool that they could use. We have to have comprehensive, if you want to have comprehensive force training, then it has to be from, a, from the whole, what works, what doesn't work. And then we train from there. And personally, I've used it, I've seen it, and when it's used properly, it's a great tool um, and the person has no long lasting effects. 
one thing I want to say here for people who are listening, um, I, I, the three of us are all preaching to the choir, right? Uh, we, we all believe this. We're all martial artists. We're all trained. We all understand that a karate choke is safer than an arm bar. But there are a lot of people out there who believe that all cops are bad. And they are hearing the word choke and they think that means physically, you know, restrain, uh, uh, stopping circulation and, and airways and killing someone. Um, they hear more physical training. We're, we're saying how we, we think police officers have more physical training and they're thinking, no, this is the opposite. We want, we want it to be less physical. Um, however, what I want, really want to stress here is people who train at a gym, at a dojo, people who are martial artists, people who spar and get punched and punch other people, it, it, it helps psychologically as well. That, that confidence that Mitch mentioned earlier is, is like a secret key. Now, I, I do believe that there should be psych evaluations, more being done with the hiring process with, with police officers before they're hired, before they're uh, out on the field. However, like you said, if, if, if they are doing more sparring, if they are doing more training, if they're in that martial arts environment more often, there's going to be more humility. They're going to be more humble. They're going to be more calm in a scenario where they, they aren't just so quick to reach for that gun and pull the trigger because they have more confidence in their physical abilities to not just, to, to not just win, but to, but to restrain and do it in a, in a safe manner for, for both them and, and the civilian or the suspect. Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. Could be more. Yeah, and, 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 and it's, it's so true what you're saying, Shane, and that's why... You know, it, it's, it's hard to sit on the sidelines with what's going on right now in, in society, right? Because I feel personally, a lot of times what you see is people that have no knowledge on martial arts and what you and combat are now setting the, it's kind of, it's, it's a reactionary result of, of what's going on. A few bad apples, really sad scenarios are now going to set the standard for law enforcement, as Mitch mentioned earlier, who are actually not very, uh, situations that are not that common in, in the amount of, of training that they have. So Mitch, if it, was, if it was one area where you feel, if you can only choose one area, the police officers needed more training, what would that be as far as, you know, whether it be the communication or human behavior or, or would it be the combat side in itself? Well, that's a hard question, Marcus. Um, and I, I say that because, again, I think we do a pretty good job right now in certain areas of doing the tactical communication, of getting uh, other people to help us dealing with uh, the mentally ill, uh, and I, I'll use that broad term uh, of people. Um, I think we're doing a better job at that. And as we go on, the homeless pot, look at because of the laws that have passed in California, our homeless population has increased immeasurably. You can't, you see it, um, whether it was 8109, whether it's Prop 47, people that would have been in custody are now out of custody. And the problem with that is they got no help. The state didn't provide anything. We don't have wraparound services for them. They didn't come out and go into a, a drug program. They didn't go to psych evaluations program. They didn't go to a job training program. They didn't go into a program to come out and to be productive. They're put out in the street and they end up homeless. Mm. All right. And you, and while your crime levels may have stayed the same in certain areas, the quality of life issues have become um, extremely relevant. And the fact is nobody wants to have a homeless encampment behind their house, in their alley, by their park, where their kids go. Um, I have a, 
lot of empathy for the homeless. You really do. Uh, we have done we have done a terrible job. I'll, I'll say this: we have done the wrong job in our government of providing this, the 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 tools these people need to come back to society. All right. Now we did all these things to reduce prison population. We've done, no, and they're going to say we're spending this money on the homeless. Look at the results of it. The proofs in the pudding. The proofs in your streets when you go out and look at it. So I, mean, I guess a tangent I went on. on. So you asked me one thing that I would improve on. I would improve on having regular arrest and control training. Notice I said not defensive tactics, arrest and control. The police officers by 835A have the right of our penal code, have a right to an effect an arrest. They have a right to use objective reasonable force to effect that arrest. They have a right not to decease from that arrest. Um, so saying that is, I think it's very important, like anything else is. If I'm getting you ready for a, a fight, Marcus, I just can't have you train once a month. Am I right? If you do, you're not going to be very good. You're going to be actually going to go out there. You're going to go, I'm going to whip your butt after I'm done, Mitch, because this, this wasn't very good. All right? So it has to be constant. It doesn't have to be long. It could be that every week there's something for them to go over and when we look at where confrontations occur you need to break down you need to go through your statistics and look at them more than likely most of the confrontations occur when you go hands-on to put someone in custody when you go to put handcuffs on them so most of our, our our training will occur in that particular area once i put my hands on somebody how do i affect and arrest of this person in the most efficient and effective manner possible um, so we have these tools on us. We know we can use them. Um, you guys have seen, uh, how these tools work. You notice that the taser doesn't work all the time. There's a, there's a, there's a factor in it that doesn't work, um, through no fault of the taser. It's just life in general. It doesn't work at times. Person's clothing, the environment, um, wrong shot, whatever it is, it, it doesn't work all the time. I just watched a shooting recently in, um, Chicago where a police officer was tasing a person, they got up and stabbed them several times they were sh before they were shot by um, uh, assisting officers. So everything you do has a failure factor. We have to train for that. You train like anything else's. You train to go up. I'm gonna start with, and I'll give an example. I'm gonna start with my jab and work from there. If that doesn't work, what do I do? If that doesn't work, what do I do? Do I have ability to change? And so we have to train our officers to have an A, B, C, and D. Uh, when they're dealing with people. Let's get that down. I think it's important to continue with that. And that type of training comes from working with the use of force experts in the law enforcement field because they know what's needed. Um, you know, with, several years ago when, uh, by the way, Marcus and I are both graduates of Long Beach State. So I want to give a, a shot to the beach. When I was down there in the 70s, that's how old I am. When I was down there in the 70s, I went through comparative police studies program. I went back in the 2000s, people. Uh, so I went back. Marcus, you were there. Just yeah, after you I was there, master's right? in criminal justice, right? Right. And you got yours in master's sports management, right? Sports management, yes. Yes. So uh, Marcus is also educated, guys. So uh, going <laughs> so down there, comparative, yeah, you are. Comparative police practices was, and, and Shane, you asked this question uh, about prior to, and this is, that's a, gr a great lead into it. The Tokyo, the Tokyo police, one of the um, factors that allowed you to be a Tokyo police officer was you had to be a black belt in Kodokan Judo or Kendo, I believe. I believe it was those two. 
one of those two. So does it, would it help if you had to have a black belt in jujitsu or, or trained in it for so many years, have a level of efficiency in Krav Maga, um, we could name a number of them, right? Relevant type of, of wrestling. You know, do you have a level that we could train to test you and to see this is where you are to come in? Because we know there's so many that don't give out black belts either. That's, that's another thing. You know, kickboxers don't get a black belt. Wrestlers don't get a black belt. Yet I'm never going to tell you a wrestler is not competent at controlling somebody. So I do believe there's a competency that you could come in with, Shane, that would be nice to see that we would, you know, probably have a test. Hey, you pass this test. Boom, you're into the – I think it would be nice to see that. I don't think we'll ever see that. But I think it would be nice to have a level of competency when you come in that on your own that you would have the ability. That way when Marcus comes to teach you a certain – a principle that you would you go, I know what that is. It, it, it coincides to what I'm doing. I know how to put it in context. It makes it easier to train. You know this as well as I do. The people who are well-trained are easier to train. People who aren't well-trained, it's very difficult. You know, it's interesting about that, too. I, I never heard that about Tokyo police, but if, if I'm a citizen in Tokyo, I'm going to be much more hesitant to break the law or, <laughs> or, or fight back against a police officer knowing they're a black belt in judo and they're going to slam me on my head. It's a good point. Well, you know what? You know, Tokyo, think about Japan. They have low crime. One is national shame, right? They're a very, mm-hmm. I think the, tr- the proper word is homogeneous society. They're basically one type of race there. So a shame, shame is a big issue. Uh, doing something wrong for us we're a melting pot i mean we're you you throw the sand in the wind that's as many different cultures we have in this area so saying that we don't have national shame um i don't believe i'm just going on i at one time i believe we were more religious uh, and i think I, i think um organized religion has um certain things into it that cause people shame also so i think we've lost a national shame and I, I'm saying that is, so Japan has their own issues with that, but we have um, a very heterogeneous society. And saying that is, I do believe it'd be nice to find some level of experience you need to come into law enforcement. That'd be great. And it could be for the military. You know, they, they go through a pretty good core of training now. I know they all have their own type of MMA program that they use. So we could come up with something and then we put our, and then the issue is when you come in, are you going to stay doing that? And that's up to the department to continue on from there. And and I know you have you work you and John Marsh uh, again the heavyweight that has fought both in Pride and UFC. Fought Rico Rodriguez who was a UFC heavyweight champion and um, uh, someone with amazing wrestling background. You have a lot of background in both Krav Maga, boxing, and MMA. Um, I I know, but for the audience. What would you say is the difference in the type of force training that you provide versus many other departments, for example? Well, I think one is for anything to be effective, it has to be constant. Yes, we have to. So you have to you have to have that at least on, on a regular basis to go into it. I think you need to set a base for your training. And, I, and that's why I say, hey, go go to systems and learn how to box. That's going to help you go to, uh, you know, you know what, if I had my way, you would, uh, everyone coming up would go, Hey, you're going to go do a year of amateur wrestling, a year of amateur boxing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to train you. And then we can teach you anything we want yeah. because you're going to have a, a sponge for a mind and you're going to have all these basics saying that we, we know that's not going to happen. Um, I think it has to be constant and we have to take a look at what type of confrontations we're getting into Marcus. You know, it's, it's when I, you know, 
you and I both know that when you deal with someone who's intoxicated, whether it's drug or alcohol, they don't listen to you. So what do they do when you go to put your hands on them? How do they move? Those are things that are important. Do we shoot? I'm sorry. Do we do a team takedown together? Do we do an arm drag takedown together? Do we do a hip drag takedown together? Um, I think officers should work in pairs. I think they should be physically fit and they should have an idea what's going to happen when that confrontation starts. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. And, and the training that you guys do as far as, as, as that arrest and control that you were talking about. As far uh, as that. Uh, yeah, you, you, I know you focus a lot on, 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 on wrestling. Would you say, you said amateur boxing, amateur wrestling. Would you say the wrestling part in itself is something, if you could choose one, one genre for, for officers, would it be wrestling? Yeah, I think so, with a caveat that they have to learn the locks that go with it. Mm. You know, the locks, the, uh, the arm locks, those types of things. I think, I think you see the functionality of wrestling in mixed martial arts. Uh, it's not to say jujitsu doesn't have it. It's not to say boxing, but it, it's important. So when we focus on, on what we're doing for law enforcement officers, the type of locks and holes we're doing, what really helps us is when we get somebody trained who's been through a striking and grappling program, then it's easy to teach them. You go, hey, we're going to do this. I, you know, for you, Mark, because I come in, I, or Shane, I come and say, this is just an arm drag program. Bang, it's an arm drag program. It's, a, it's to, to do certain things. You're going to pick up on it right away. So I, I think wrestling is a great base for, um, uh, for any type of martial artist. I think wrestling, let's face it, uh, you and I come from Krav Maga, as I met Marcus I. The founder of Kramaga was a champion wrestler, yeah. champion boxer. Yeah. You know, so what does that tell you? I mean, it tells you that, hey, the, but I think wrestling has been around forever. We, we go back, it, before recorded time, it goes back to the Greeks. Uh, we know before them. We know where that wrestling or a type of wrestling or grappling has been around forever. And that's whether it's in North America, South America, the, um, the Orient, uh, Europe. Uh, some of the greatest wrestlers come out of um, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, uh, Russian. I mean, they're bears. They're absolute bears. And so the, the type, I think wrestling does a great job of controlling people. And that's what we're looking to do. I'm not looking to beat the crap out of you. It's, a long, it's not my job. My job is not to punish you. My job is to arrest and control you. That's why I arrest and control. My job is not to sit there and beat you half to death if I don't, if it's not objectively reasonable. So I have to say that I think wrestling does a great job of controlling people with gross motor skills. There's other things we can use, like for instance, Aikido. Um, I think jujitsu does a really jujitsu does a good job of using gross motor skills too. But Aikido and some of the other arts use fine motor skills, and that doesn't always work in a confrontation where it's violent. Right. 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 I just want to ask Mitch why why you say boxing. I mean, I, I'd imagine it's not to be able to throw punches necessarily, but to see the punches, to keep your eyes open, to defend. Be able to defend yourself from punches because seventy percent of assaults on people occur with fists being thrown to the face. Mm. That's it. I mean, I, that's the old mark. But so if you look at police officers assaulted, if you look at people who are assaulted, most often they're they're what right-handed. I think ninety percent of people are right-handed. It's a right hand being thrown to your face. Yeah. I, I think before you do it, you have to know how to defend yourself from punch. Um, now, that may be the quickest counter is a punch back. You know this. It could be that the open bang, I counter back. That may be what we do. And I think people undersell how dangerous a punch is. Either one of you can hit me, and I can fall and hit my head in the concrete, and I'm dead. 
Yeah. And that's not an exaggeration. That's a contra coup type of homicide. It occurs. It's not that uncommon. It's uncommon, but it's not like never happens. So learning how to defend yourself with your hands. And I don't mean boxing in the sense that just strictly Marcus knows, I mean, using your hands to defend yourself, unarmed combat, open hands. That boxing can help you if you have the right instructors. I like boxing as a base. I like the footwork on boxing. Um, now, I think people who are good in boxing, good in wrestling, they pick up everything else quickly. Mm. Those are, you know, I think they pick up things quick. Another thing I would say, too, for all you martial arts out there, you should dance. And I mean that. Or do gymnastics. But dancing because you're going to have a good time with the women, but you're going to be extremely core strong and flexible. Um, uh, that's another thing about Eni Lichtenfield. Eni was also a champion ballroom dancer. Yeah. People don't, right? So he had movement. He was able to move. And uh, these are things that are common that we don't think about. But when you have somebody and you've seen them, when they can move well, you go, that guy's going to be difficult to deal with. Yeah. Right? Look at Adesanya right now, the UFC champion, oh. who's an amazing break dancer. And um, you, you said something that I find really interesting, and that's objectively reasonable. Yes. Objectively reasonable in, in a current environment, which is being very subjective, very inflamed, very emotional. What's, how, how, because objectively reasonable is very different from you or us to someone who's never been in a fight, someone who's a, a female officer who weighs 120 pounds, for example. You just said it, Marcus. You just said it. Objective reveal is based upon the totality of circumstances, including your skills and the skills of your opponent, the size of your opponent. Is your opponent intoxicated? Are they going through um, a mental breakdown? Are they, uh, um, are, you, are they six foot six, weighing 295 pounds, like our good friend Russell? Are they like John March? Are they... Is the person, the officer, 115 pounds and five foot two, right? It's a huge difference. So when that, you know, the, the threat that person presents is based, the, the force that I can use is based upon the totality of circumstances. And that includes everything. The, the severity of the crime, the threat of resistance, the actual resistance, multiple people, multiple suspects. The environment that you're in. Are you on a rooftop that if you get pushed, you're going to fall over? I did a, case, a, a case recently to where I was, um, uh, as a qualified expert, the, the deputies uh, had a fight with somebody on a mountain trail on the Agua Verde, the Agua Verde Trail. And on both sides, the trail is four feet, five feet wide. But on both sides, it dropped off to um, basically, you went down 150 feet. So if you got pushed over the side, you're going to fall and you weren't going to stop until you hit a butt down at the bottom. So when we say objectively reasonable based on totality of the circumstances mm -hmm. and everything that goes along with that. And that's, uh, that's important to know. And thank you for bringing that up. Um, it's a very important subject. It's an important inflamed, very emotional topic right now. But I, I do want to, you have been in this game for so long, both with Kramaga, with mixed martial arts, with boxing. Um, and uh, I, I, I do want to line up uh, the, 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 the environment a little bit and, and, and just some of the stuff that you've seen. Over you've been in the, how long were you on the force for? I was on from 1978 to 2017. Wow. So you've seen a lot. And, and I believe the force training has changed a lot over the years. Um, yes. <laughs> it has. 
as as an officer, what what would you say? What would you what would you tell a young person who's getting into whether it be martial arts or who wants to get into law enforcement? Hmm. What would I tell them? What uh, look look? It's a I tell about law enforcement. It's a very noble job. One of the most noble jobs there is. Hmm. There's many, you know, the medical profession, uh, first responders of any type. Um, Firefighters, they have a great job. People love them. They're nozzle heads, uh, but uh, okay. But everybody loves them. They they love firefighters, okay? <laughs> and all they do is handle a hose. So there, I'll say my. They'll come at me now. Uh, whatever. Bottom line is now you know how I feel. But it's a great noble profession, and it's one to where you can make a difference. Number right. one. Two is you have to be able to talk to people who go into law. I think some of the best people are like you who are in sales. I really do believe that. I've seen some wonderful officers talk to people who are in sales because they're selling themselves. They're selling this. I think verbal skills are undersold on anything. Both of you have jobs. Both of you appreciate when someone can articulate an idea to you or tell you about something that occurred and they can do it in a fashion that is effective and, and efficient. And I think we undersell the verbal skills. So I that. Be physically fit. Be confident. When you have your uniform, look good in that uniform. Present yourself well. Um, a little bit of lightning. A long time ago, an old timer, when I was boxing, and um, you know this, Marcus, better than anybody else. When you box, your nose looks like it's a gigantic plum on your face. It's a pear. Because all you do is get hit. Yes? Yeah. Even if you're good at moving, you're going to get hit. Yes? Because you spar every day an old boxing gym you spar every day they don't give you a break you walk in they get in there you go okay you're going to teach me anything no get up there <laughs> they, that's not what it is unless you become good enough to where they want to spend time with you well i remember one day i got done and this uh, an old time police officer to me he said hey it's great you're doing boxing but i want you to remember one thing i want you to stay in the best shape you can and he goes i know boxing helps you and i said why because if you're in great shape you can take a hell of an ass kicking understand that and I said, yes, sir. And it was, it's been true ever since, right? Been true ever since. That was an old timer. He gave me some advice. So um, those are things. So if I would, and I would, if I were a young man, I would also train in a mixed martial arts studio. I think that's the best way to go. Um, and then I find somebody who's doing specifically a law enforcement and I would train in that area also. You know, Krav Maga has some great things for weapon retention and weapon takeaway. So those are wonderful things. Um, I think it's important in a mixed martial arts studio, I think you'll get a wide breadth of knowledge about how to handle people and how to take care of yourself. And again, as Shane said, and as you said, when you come on scene and you look good in your uniform and you have confidence, it shows that people evaluate you all the time. All the time. I've watched him evaluate John Marsh, drunks, and I said, you're an idiot if you think you can get something over on that guy. <laughs> Or, right? I mean, you know, you've met guys like that, Marcus. Uh, Terry Bullman, for example. I mean, you people, people for the most part can pick up the aura of someone who is confident. Mm -hmm. Someone who yeah. can handle it. They can. We're animals. We pick up things. And um, I think it's important to note that. So those are kind of the, I would do that. But if you like people and you like helping people, then being a police officer is a great job. It really is. That's great. That's great. And for anyone in the area, if they want to meet you or train with you, Triton Gym, that's where you and John Marsh are at. Uh, yes. 
And uh, yeah, John Marsh is, is, is a great guy. I, I remember he used to work as a bouncer down in Hermosa. And you're right, when people have been drinking, all you got to do is look at John, look at his ears, look at his face, look at his size, and you go, I don't want to fight this guy. And, 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 and then I've seen it. I've seen, you know, people half his size that have just been drinking. It's the liquor courage and trying to pick a fight with him. It's crazy. Yeah. It, I'll, t- I'll tell you a funny story, John, and I'm going to pass it on. So remember, I can be liberty with this one. But when he worked down at Hermosa Beach, one night he's in there, and this guy of equal size comes up to him and says, hey, man, you a wrestler? And John looked at him, and he had the ears, he had the face, you know, he had the nose, the whole nine yards. He looked better than you, Shane, but close to it, right? He had the whole wrestling, big, thick head, big, thick body. And John goes, yeah, I wrestle. And he goes, let's wrestle. And John goes, no, I can't. I'm working right now. And the whole night, for about a half hour, the guy keeps bothering John to wrestle. I want to, come on, guy, come on, wrestler. So John goes, okay, I can't wrestle in here. Let's go out back. So John opens up the back door. The guy walks out. John shuts the door and says, too bad I don't wrestle. And the guy comes up. The guy's outside trying to get in. John goes around the front. And, and he says, don't let that guy in. He'll try to kill me. He's really mad now. And so that, that worked. So what is that? That tells you, hey, being smart, being clever. You didn't want to get in a fight. We don't want to get in a fight. And law enforcement officers don't want to get in a fight. But if they have to, they have to be competent in doing what they're doing. And I always thought I would laugh when John told me that story, he called me up. I was laughing my butt off. He says, that guy looked like he could wrestle too. (laughs) (laughs) Shane, any last words? No, I think that's a a good place to end it on. I like that. I agree. Marcus, always a pleasure seeing you. Marcus is one of my favorite students. Like I said, he's a professional golfer and his dad hates me for not getting him out of the fight game <laughs> i don't know why no, no, no. i'm retired i'm retired now we're good <laughs> yeah yeah but you know what someone comes along and says oh what do you think oh i think i got one minute mate let's go what do you want to do i know you marcus <laughs> mitch a pleasure having you on um and 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 thank you for what you do both for both what you've done for me and also what you do for society i think and for law enforcement i think is great you you guys are wonderful. And thank, keep training people. That's a burden thing. Keep training people. And I think, Shane, you said it. And Marcus, I know you said it. Marcus, I know you did say this. Um, for the most part, people who are real confident in self, martial artists are very humble people. Because you get humbled every day. Yeah. Uh, you go train. And I, I, I've been tapped more than a kegger at a freshman party in, in college. <laughs> right? That's how many times I've been tapped. Um, or I've been tapped. Whatever. You get, you sit there, you go, man, I thought I was good. And it humbles you every day. And I think being humble, I think being humble is a wonderful thing for people uh, to know. And then it makes you confident because you can always say, Hey, I've been there. I've been worse. I've been through worse. So saying that I'm going to sign off and tell you guys, good luck, be safe. And whenever you want me on, uh, we'll come on. And next time let's bring the bull on so we can tell you funny stories about being uh, a no-holds-barred fighter in the early days. Excellent. Mitch, thank you so much for coming on. Truly appreciate it. Thank Thank you. you. See you guys. Bye-bye.